Welcome back to the Photographers of Color podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Turner, Research Fellow in Photography here at the University of Arkansas School of Art. And I very quickly want to thank and acknowledge the School of Art for their support in making this podcast possible. It's been a while since our last episode with Danielle Bowman at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And here we are almost three months later. I want to say thank you for your patience and getting another episode to you. And I also want to thank everyone who continues to support this podcast and platform. I received nothing but generous and kind feedback on the podcast via various social media platforms that I'm on. I love seeing the Instagram story shout outs, the retweets and direct messages. Just knowing this show reaches the people it's meant to and that you all take something away from these conversations. So thank you. I really do appreciate it. Today's guest for episode 11 is Akia Brian Brown. Akia Brion is a photographer, writer, curator, and researcher whose personal work investigates the implications of historical, racial, and social structures in relation to the development of contemporary black life and identity within America, with a particular focus on the ways in which history influences the contemporary cultural milieu of the American black middle class. She explores current political and social themes as they relate to the historical forms of oppression, discrimination, and segregation in American history. Akia Brion has received the Visual Task Force Award from the National Association of Black Journalists. Her work is also featured in the Smithsonian's Ralph Renser Collection and Archives. She was announced the 2018 winner for Duke University's Center for Documentary Arts Collection Award as the 2018 Documentarian of Color. Her series, Black Picket Fences, was acquired for their permanent collection and is on preserve at the David M. Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library. She was nominated for PDN's 30 2018 New and Emerging Photographers to Watch. Brown was also named the 2018 Janet and Walter Sardenheim Artscape Prize winner. In 2019, Akia Brion co-founded Shades Collective, and in 2020, co-founded Diary of Angry Black Women. Akia received her BFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art in the dual degree program of Photography and Humanities. She is originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, and currently lives and works in Baltimore, Maryland. Traditionally, I give a small synopsis of what we talk about during the conversation before the episode starts playing. But today I thought I'd read a quote from artist David Hammonds that comes from the I-Minded book, Living and Writing Contemporary Art by Dr. Kelly Jones, published in 2011 by Duke University Press. I just think this sums up a gist of what me and Akia spoke about during this conversation. If you know who you are, then it's easy to make art. Most people are really concerned about their image. Artists have allowed themselves to be boxed in by saying yes all the time because they want to be seen and they should be saying no. I do my street art mainly to keep rooted in that, who I am, because the only thing that's really going on is in the street. That's where something is really happening. It isn't happening in these galleries. I've invented a rule book for myself. That's gotten me over all of this stuff. If an artist doesn't have his own rules, then he's playing with those of the art world. 
and you know those are stacked against you. Without further ado, here is episode 11 with the Kia Breon Brown. Enjoy. Yeah, well, an introduction. Um, my name is Akia Brian Brown. Um, so I am originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, but am based in live and work in in Baltimore, in Maryland. Here, yeah, just a little about my background. Um, I've I've honestly always been involved in the arts. Um, it, it really began in kindergarten when I took my first drawing class. So I, I was in a, in a county that predominantly was focused on sports and also on STEM. Um, so, and this was before STEAM was introduced, before they introduced the art into it. So I, I really was sort of an, an outlier in that community, but I, I always gravitated towards the art room and it really began there. I knew I wanted to be an artist um, from the time I was a kid, but when I got to high school and we finally started having more electives, I was introduced to photography as an elective. And it really began from there. As far as my academics have gone, I'd, I'd always been about a year and a half to two years ahead since um, elementary school. So by the time it came to high school, I had a lot more room for electives. So I filled it all up with the art classes and the photography courses. And um, I got my first cameras. Uh, it was a 35 millimeter Konica and a 35 millimeter Canon AE-1 from my grandfather and my great uncle. So um, those are my first cameras. Uh, that's what I learned to shoot on. I shot on those all throughout high school and I still have them today. But yeah, I, I would say it was definitely something I sought out, uh, the arts. Uh, my, my mom is in business. My grandfather is a physicist. My uncle is an engineer. So um, it, it was really me sort of seeking out what I was interested in since my wasn't really doing much of it. Um, and then, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, an exciting time. Uh, my senior year was essentially just all um, photography courses. Um, I was in independent studio and then I was a teacher's aide for the introductory photo class. So it was just something I was doing constantly. And then I ended up going to MICA. Um, I was a double major in photography and humanistic studies, which is basically just humanities. And my focus within that was critical theory um, most specifically French feminist theory and African American feminist theory. Um, so that's where a lot of my, my work sort of intersects, you know, with the research and, and the writing, um, and the photography. And I was also a, a minor in sustainability and social practice. So, um, all of them, you know, sort of picking out all my different interests and they all sort of melded together. It was definitely a more of an independent way of studying. There weren't really a lot of majors. I'm not even sure if there were other seniors. I think there were maybe three or four other seniors who were also double majors in the humanities program. So it was very, very small. Yeah, so that's a little bit about my background. I, I want to ask you some more specific questions. So yeah. you went to MICA. Is that how you sort of 
ended up sticking around Baltimore and why? No, so I was already in Baltimore beforehand. So um, my mom and I had moved to Maryland. And so I had gone to high school out in the county and middle school. And then when I was 17, uh, my senior year, three days before, I ended up moving across the country to California um, to finish school out there. I really hated the school I was at, and I hated just where I was um, as an angsty teenager. So um, once I was in California, I, I realized I just missed um, I missed the South, and I also missed the East Coast. So I came back to Micah. I had already done um, pre-college there, so I had already had credits before. Um, and I knew Baltimore, so it was it was really something where I was sort of missing certain levels of familiarity. And then I just ended up staying once I graduated. I actually went back to California to teach for three months right after I graduated and then ended up coming back and I was working as a photographer uh, for the uh, Department of Defense. So I did that for a year after I graduated and it's so much cheaper to live in Baltimore and work in DC. So I just ended up saying. Okay, nice. And you also, you grew up in Louisiana um, can you tell me a little bit about that and sort of what things uh, that you still sort of draw from in terms of inspiration from childhood that that is still in your practice today or that affects your practice today? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it really comes from my family. Um, and, and, you know, so where my family's from in Louisiana is uh, New Orleans and we are Creole. so. Um, my understanding of myself and my family is is really it's really rooted in in being creole um but on the other on the other end my grandfather is um and his family is from um columbus mississippi so you know they're they're somewhat close but also culturally very different um so for me a, a huge thing has been food actually um and and food is something that has really allowed me to, to retain some sort of connection at home. And for me, you know, that's like gumbo, jambalaya. And, you know, a lot of places um, don't really cook that food. Or, you know, there's nowhere to really get that stuff. There's nowhere to, to get po'boys here. Um, if there are, I probably won't like them as much. But, um, you know, food, music for me has been a huge way that I... I keep that that awareness, but also just the way that people move through the space. Um, like in New Orleans, people are just, everyone talks to you. Um, and, and not just in New Orleans, but honestly, I find just throughout the South, you know, culturally, people talk to you, they say hello, they acknowledge you if you pass someone. Here in Baltimore, that definitely is not the case. Uh, like you, you don't talk to people. If you look someone in the eyes, it's like, what's going on here so mm -hmm. um yeah growing up down there and having that connection to the landscape has has also really changed I think how I navigate spaces here and I, I tend to gravitate more towards um I guess the cultural and and 
historical places of, of significance that I, I think are so embedded in the landscape here that there, it's almost not approached in the same way that it is down in Louisiana. You know, even looking at a Confederate statue, the way that it operates in Louisiana is not the way it operates up here in Maryland and, mm -hmm. and sort of uh, the oblivion to it. Uh, so that's, that's been something that I think I'm, I'm constantly thinking about when I'm, I'm, I'm going through the different landscapes. Yeah. Um, and speaking about like landscape and just movement and New Orleans in general, um, I spent about two weeks in New Orleans during the New York Times Journalism Institute. And so mm -hmm. our base was at Dillard University. And my grandfather and my mother went to Dillard. Okay, amazing. Yeah, I really liked that campus. It was small, but it, it, you could just tell that there was like just this legacy there. And we spent two weeks and um, I remember doing a story on the, um, let me see if I can get this right. I think it was the Bienvenue Bayou in the mm -hmm. ninth ward um so that was that was amazing uh trying to cover that story um looking at the ninth ward after um hurricane katrina and things like that but also i saw on, on your website that you participated in the nabj task force as well mm -hmm. I, I, I did that as well in Boston a few years after um, that, what I did in New Orleans. So how, how was your time at the NABJ uh, task force? Oh yeah, it was, it was really great. It was really great. Um, one thing for me specifically in New Orleans is, is how much history there is just in no matter where you go. Um, and it is, I think Dillard especially is very interesting um, because it is such a, a beautiful space, but not a lot of people, especially not a lot of um, like black youth really know about Dillard or, or have heard about Dillard. Um, to me, it's a very, um, it's, I, I don't want to say like almost, almost sacred space. Um, you know, my grandfather went there and then my mom ended up going there and her cousins and, um, it's very much like rooted in our family, but being able to work with NABJ was pretty amazing. I actually got the opportunity to work both in New Orleans and in, in Baltimore. So, um, and one thing that people don't realize is how similar Baltimore and New Orleans are. There, there's a lot of, of similarities, especially with the way that the city is, is laid out and demographically where the black communities reside and, and where the white communities reside. Um, and those, those changes are visually something that you see moving from street to street, um, which I don't find in, in many cities, but actually both Baltimore and New Orleans have, have that in common. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, city landscape is interesting. My brother's a landscape architect, and uh, we always talk about our hometown and um, talk about our house. Our house was like the house we grew up in was on the other side of the tracks. It was the black side of town, and it was these these homes that were built sort of after uh, World War One or World War Two. One of those, and you know, these public housing programs, and um, they made it easy for you to get housing loans, but then. Um, the white communities that used to be there, they move on the other side of the tracks. Mm -hmm. 
the, the black community starts to occupy those spaces um that's a whole other conversation <laughs> for sure but yeah it, it, that stuff is interesting how cities are laid out it, i mean it tells you a lot absolutely oh yeah definitely it, it, i wish more people spent time really looking at the layout of, of spaces mm-hmm. and and how it is but also who used to occupy those spaces and who occupies them now um i think a lot of black people in particular would be surprised to know how much we actually did have. Indeed. And we talked about that a little bit in our preliminary interview, some of our family history, and that'll probably come up later in the, in the conversation. Mm-hmm. My next question for you is during our preliminary interview, we talked about how I had personally came across your work. Uh, but it was this other instance of the ain't bad, Southern photography situation, that open call they had, um, your, re- your response that really drew me um, to reach out to you. Uh, we both said that we were not surprised by, by the Ain't Bad situation. You spoke about your own experience in the art world, opportunities that were coming from the visibility of your work, the awards and accolades that came along with that from those institutions, but you also spoke about the conflict because um, people in those institutions not looking like you um, and all the other things that come along with that. You also expressed your frustration uh, with people of color supporting and seeking validation from these organizations, but at the same time not supporting uh, the initiatives for and created by uh, people of color. Can you just speak about that, those things in general? I know I just threw a lot at you, but uh, I think we can make it flow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, with with Ain't Bad in particular, um, that situation, yeah, once again, was, was one that wasn't uh, really surprising. I, I think we had talked about it before a little bit, but just aesthetically, they, they had already sort of had a bias towards the type of work that they were interested in in showing. So already I, I was not surprised, but I think what really, I guess, compelled me to speak was how many black photographers uh, were speaking out on it and not necessarily mirroring the surprise, but really being disappointed and, and shocked. I was definitely, um, frustrated by I guess the amount of surprise um, by black photographers in particular Um, and it was sort of a moment for me also where I realized that there's a lot of situations where I don't feel like we question things as much as we should especially as black photographers And and then looking at a lot of the opportunities that you really have to gain visibility. Um, I don't think that we're often thinking of them as what they are, which is gatekeepers. And, and, they, and they function in that way. And when you look at the consistency of the work that's shown um, and the aesthetics that sort of, uh, you know, are uh, align with that, you know, it's, it's very obvious that it's not just, um, you know, a platform, but it's definitely a curation. Um, and I think sometimes not framing it in in our minds in that way sort of gets us to this point where, um, you know, they choose all white photographers for something um, focused on the American South. And 
they think it's okay and don't actually understand until they're called out that it's not okay. But, uh, you know, I think at the same time, we have to take as much responsibility for allowing that to be the case where they can think like that and not really have to be confronted with it. And I, and I don't mean that to say that we, you know, there hasn't been um, movements, but I definitely think sometimes uh, for the sake of getting opportunities or not being um, outcast or exiled or left out of getting to, to do things or have exposure, we do sort of just let let ourselves be silent and then we, we place so much value in these organizations that that don't don't really care. Um, so when I spoke up about that, it was mainly because I was I was frustrated. Um, I, I guess by the I guess the consistent surprise that racism is real. People are racist. Uh, we do get excluded from things, um, and I think sometimes it can be hard for us, even in 2020, to to really sit with that. Um, and I think in a lot of ways we've been shielded from having to feel that um, and having to acknowledge it. Uh, but I think this was a situation where people um, were really forced to do that. And, and as Black photographers in particular, it was a, a, a very particular moment because they hadn't done an issue like that um, for a few years. And with everything going on, um, I know a lot of people were very excited to see that the focus was on the American South, um, especially because there's there's a lot of Black individuals in this country who you know, as a result of the Great Migration, really have no connection to the South, and they have no connection to uh, what the South represented for them and for their ancestors. And I think that there's also, in a contemporary sense, a lot of misrepresentations about what the South actually is, the kind of people that are there, the culture that's there. Um, and I think it's often spoken of very homogeneously, but this this was an opportunity to to break away from that and and they didn't do that. Um, but I think it was a really, really important moment for us to sort of stop and be like, okay, well, we weren't included in this, but why do we want to be included in this? You know, like we're asking ourselves, why is this particular platform so important that now we have all of this outrage? Um, and, you know, I, I think it's something that a lot of us need to ask ourselves more. And I, and I think for me, my response to it was really just to, to get people to, to stop caring, <laughs> which obviously is is easier said than done, but I do think that we have to get to a certain point where, yeah, we, we stop caring um, who places value in our work. Because uh, if we're not going to do that for ourselves, we're going to continue to be disappointed, uh, but we're also going to continue to not see other platforms and other initiatives by our own people being supported in the same ways. Um, and, and it is something to really sit with. Like, why, why do I feel um, more validated by this platform giving me space? Um, and then thinking about the ways that they're benefiting from giving you space. Are they giving you space because you're talented or are they giving you space because they need to fill a certain quota of, of black artists?
Um, and, and I think, um, you know, that the conversation can go into a variety of, of different ways. But for me, it, I was really, and I had already been in a space of reflection of looking back over the past couple of years, especially, and just realizing I, I, I had um, gotten to a place I didn't think I would get to uh, so soon and so soon after graduating undergrad especially and I wasn't satisfied you know I, I wasn't feeling satisfied I wasn't feeling happy with the validation I was receiving I wasn't feeling happy with who was validating me I wasn't feeling happy with who was seeing my work um, you know if you look through my images most of the people I photograph are not the people that go into the galleries or the museums that that I show work and and I started to think like what what does that mean what am I making the work for then am I making it for white eyes and white consumption that ultimately doesn't understand the reason why the work had to be made in the first place and and so there's there's a lot of questions I think that we have to ask ourselves where we, you know, we also sometimes give ourselves a pass, I think, and I'm speaking specifically about black people. We, we give ourselves a pass, not um, really sit with like critiquing ourselves and, and why we are seeking out, you know, um, platforms and space and time from others. And I've seen quite a lot of initiatives recently, especially by black and brown artists, and most of them have gotten support, fiscal support from a lot of white individuals, you know, who have been redirecting their, their funds, which not to say that's a bad thing, but why are we also not putting our own money into our own community and supporting our own initiatives? Um, where I feel, I, I would feel more validated by being featured in those platforms. I, personally, I feel more validated being featured in Essence than I would in Time Magazine. But that's because I understand the importance and the legacy of a publication like Essence at a time before uh, all of these institutions had to start questioning themselves. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just mentioned Essence, and uh, that's making me think about people were doing that Vogue challenge on social mm -hmm. media, and then people were like, well, what about Essence? And then people started doing the Essence challenge. But I think, like, what, what you're, this, this is a system, you know, we didn't create, it, it wasn't created by us or for us, and, you know, we didn't set up the rules. We're just kind of coming into it, and um, I, I think historically we've lacked a, a level of self-determination, like going all the way back to slavery. Um, and colonialization and all that kind of stuff. It's just a lot of things that, it, it, which is, you mentioned 2020, you know, we're still dealing with racism and all this different type of stuff. So um, visibility and validation, it definitely needs to be, uh, I don't know, recontextualizes the word or re critiqued more heavily. Um, and, and that's why I like what you said in your story as well. You said you don't make your work for people anymore. You don't care what people think. You, you, you're making it for you. I really like that position. Uh, that that kind of got me hyped up because I'm like, yes. Um, <laughs> it's like that, yeah. That's yeah. It 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 um it definitely has been uh, a journey to get to that point. Um, but I I also think there there's a lot of validity in faking confidence until you actually really have the confidence. Um, and I think for me, I, I spent my entire 
career in undergrad trying to get people to talk about my work, just to engage with my work. Um, it was it was very difficult. Um, you know, I had white professors who would tell me the way I talked about my work made white students uncomfortable. Um, I've been asked to leave classes, um, you know, of course, falling into the angry black girl trope. And, um, you know, I've, I've had a professor tell me I, I don't care about work that's not made by my people or is not about my people. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of situations on my path to self-discovery where I've always been making the same type of work, but I didn't have people willing to engage in the way that the work really required also. Um, and so I also really had to sit with myself and think, you know, wh why did I start making this work in the first place? It was not for any of these people. It was not to show work in galleries. It was not to win awards. Those things have come as a result. Uh, but the, the real reason I started to use the camera in the way that I, I have is because I wanted my story to be told. Um, and I wanted the, the stories of the people that I engage with and interact with to be told. Um, and so a lot of that also just, it, it really forced me to sit with myself and to place a certain level of value on my work before I even share it with people. Um, and I, I think a lot of it manifested because I couldn't get people to talk about my work and I really had no other choice but to just go and run with it. Um, but Black Picket Fences, which really um, set the stage for the rest of, I guess, really the beginning of my career, that was something that began in undergrad and I had almost no one who would engage with that work for two years. I was making work uh, for this series and I had no one that would engage with it. And as soon as I graduated, um, I, I won a, a, a variety of awards from, from, that one, from that one body of work. And so that to me was also just like, you know what, at a certain point, the people who are here for the work and the people who, genuinely care and want to engage will be there no matter what. Um, but me placing that value and presenting that consistently um, and making it clear that the work isn't for them at the same time, uh, th that's become just as important to my practice as making the work itself. It is actually this, this mind work that I do of realizing that I made it, so it's valid. And, and that's really, that's all you need. I love that. And, and speaking of your work, can you tell me about your project, Brown Millennial, and the critical theory you're, uh, you're engaged with, with making that body of work? Yes, 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 yes. So uh, with the Brown Millennial, um, it is sort of another continuation of Black Picket Fences, but I would say it's sort of, um, more of the self-portrait version of, of Black Picket Fences. Um, so within that series, it was definitely focused on myself and it was um, one of the first personal projects I've done. Um, but my, so my, my name is Akia Brian Brown. So a brown millennial ended up being, a, you know, a hyphenated version of my actual name. 
Um, and depending on who you ask, I would be considered a millennial. I feel like the years keep changing all the time. But um, it was really supposed to be, I guess, sort of a, a culmination of a lot of the things that have been consuming my mental space in the past year or two. Um, navigating spaces as a brown woman, as a photographer, as someone who questions things very deeply and also does it often by myself. I, I work very solitarily, um, not just in my practice, but my actual job that pays my bills. And so I, I really was um, sort of consumed in my own mind and the things that were really, really, get, I guess, consuming my thoughts. And a lot of that really has been rooted in um, a lot of the foundations, a lot of my childhood foundations. And I think that I'm someone that's very, very obsessed with how childhood affects the rest of your life. And I don't necessarily think there's as many conversations in the black community, especially with black identity, um, about how much that affects you. But um, when I got to college and I realized that I was having a really hard time engaging with other young black women and just young black kids in general, it was because I had culturally been sort of in in another um, circle. And I, and I never even felt fully rooted in it, but I was predominantly surrounded by young white kids who came from pretty well-off middle-class, upper-middle-class families um, who are often um, Republicans or conservative. So, and, and the other demographics in, in that area, they were often Asian and were um, of lighter complexion, often Chinese, Korean. Um, so it wasn't even a huge Southeast Asian community that even in tone and skin tone I could I could connect with. So, you know, they, they had their own levels of anti-Blackness. And so I sort of found myself in the midst of a very white um, upper class area, but the way I looked in the mirror didn't reflect that at all. And so I, I really started to internalize that, not just because of the ways that I had to engage with them, but then I go back and, you know, I'm, I'm with my family or with my mom's friends and, you know, they'll be talking about how white I am and why I talk the way I talk. You talk white, you know, uh, which I'm sure lots of us have have heard before but the music i listened to was was different uh the way i dressed was different the way i just presented myself was different and it was very much because i was a product of my environment and so for that series i i really stepped back and started working with self-portraiture again um i've always been very interested in Cindy Sherman and how she was able to curate such a performance in photography. Um, but I remember her being one of the first photographers I was introduced to and I just kept thinking like, how could I do this? How could I present myself as a white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes? It just, it wasn't something I would ever be able to do. Um, and so I really started to question who has the ability to take on different identities 
um, outside of their skin because, you know, I tried to take self-portraits and obviously in every single one, the first thing that you focus on is that I'm a black woman. And so I really started to, to contrast that with um, fabrics. I've, I've always really been into textiles. I wanted to be a fashion designer before I settled on photography, actually. So I sort of came back to my origins and I found um, this American, this vintage American textile collection um, at the fabric store. And they just had all these vintage um, prints that had been used before, but um, it was marketed as an American vintage collection. And, and I've also been very interested in, I love vintage things, uh, but a lot of the iconography, of course, doesn't include <laughs> many visuals of, of me or what I look like. Um, so I also became very interested in, in all these images that I grew up being consumed by, and to me really indicate a certain aspects of American culture and American identity that I was so overwhelmed by, but never ever could place myself in. And so I actually did it um, using the fabric and using myself as a subject and, and doing different things with my hair, um, getting an, an Afro wig. Um, I have my locks showing in one of them um, and then another, a wig that has straight fine hair and I contrasted those with the fabrics um, and it was very interesting showing that work because the responses that I got based on how people navigate through their own bodies and their own biases it was it was very interesting because it actually told me a lot more about other people than it did about myself which I, I found to be really curious. Um, but it is sort of a, a disjointed body of work, I'll be honest, but it was supposed to be a very, very honest representation of how I feel sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. I included some, some pieces from my, um, a letter that my mother and my, my cousin had been exchanging um, my cousin, we're the same age, um, he's the only cousin that is the same age as me that I have in my family, um, and he is in jail for, um, he's still awaiting his trial, uh, but his bail is set at $3 million, so we have um, very, very little chance of, of really getting to, to interact with him with a, a bond that high, um, but you know, I, I started to really also see a different side of mass, incarcera uh, mass incarceration. And for me, it was a first because I, I'd seen so many representations of Black life. And you look at movies and, and music and, you know, it's, it's really rooted in the hood and poverty and, and how sports is the only way out. And, you know, um, drugs becomes something that really transforms a family and a community. And, um, looking at how many black men uh, ha are targeted by the prison system. And, you know, it was something even as a black woman that I had heard of, but I hadn't experienced. Um, and so for me, it's been a really interesting time of really sharing a little bit of the things that are consuming my mind, but I think in a way that uh, most black women haven't been given the space space to do. Um, when you look at 
identity in America as a black person is very homogenous. There's, there's no consideration for socioeconomics. There's no consideration for whether you're in the South, whether you're, you're in the Southwest, the Midwest, Northeast, you know, there, there, there's, no, there's no actual consideration for how different life is, um, depending on where you are, how much money you have access to, if you have access to education. And, and so for me, um, this is my first chance to really uh, show my, my side of it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of what you just said s- sort of goes back to that idea that uh, blackness, American blackness is not just one thing. It can't be. It's, it's so many various different experiences. Um, we're all different individuals, um, sometimes from the same geographical location, so we can relate. But I like how you tie it all in to childhood, because all of our childhoods are different. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, how we were raised and different things like that. I'm 30 years old and I'm still, you know, just coming to terms with that. Oh, connecting all the dots right. from childhood. And I think it's going to be a, a lifelong thing for us all. Because um, I had some similar uh, experiences as you in terms of, you know, growing up. You know, I grew up in Arkansas and Tennessee. And then after undergrad, I moved to Ohio, New York, New Jersey, and then New York again. And, um, and then now I'm back in Arkansas. So I, I feel like, <laughs> and I traveled a lot by myself. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's just interesting, you know, when you leave the place where you were groomed and raised, um, you start to rely on those childhood memories to sort of understand your own identity and why you are who you are. Um, and I think that's the key to making art. That's the key to making art, um, knowing who you are, figuring out who you are. and um, I like that you keep using the word uh, consume, like your thoughts that are consuming. Uh, those are sometimes the best things to draw from because um, it, it, it's true and it's raw. So. Oh yeah, no, definitely. And I, and I do think, um, I think it happens at different stages for different people. But for me, um, <clears throat> even addressing the issues that I, I deal with now, um, not just in terms of communication, but even, um, how I feel when I navigate certain spaces, how I'm, in, how I'm received when I navigate certain spaces. Um, I, I just recognize that those things are not separate from the experiences that formed the, the way that I feel about those things. Um, or even my ability to really go in and out of communities. Um, and I think it became really apparent to me when I had a conversation with a peer who I went to school with. Um, she is from New York City and she was just talking about how difficult of a time she was having um, at our school in particular because there were just so many white kids she she she'd never really experienced being around so many white students um she was used to seeing other black kids you know like being the majority um and that was something that was completely foreign to me i actually found um it a lot easier to navigate through those spaces while i was still frustrated with a lot of the things that came with that experience it was not new to me you know, I, I was able to, to navigate through that differently and, 
it's because I had no choice to and and that's what I was surrounded by and and I think if we actually took some time and and really um I guess went into that a little bit deeper we we'd we'd uh it, it would be a never-ending conversation I'm sure <laughs> for many people it wouldn't cover a whole lot um, yeah next I want to ask you about your project an archive of our own which explores black maternal relationships through the creation of an archive. The project depicts you, uh, your grandmother, uh, your mom, and then in these daguerreotypes, or were they tintypes? Um, and then, uh, mm -hmm. and then um, you can clarify that for me. And then can you talk about your relationship to the science of photography and alternative process uh, within it, um, talking about this project as well? Yes, 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 yes. Um, so, yeah, so an archive of our own, um, they are um, collodion prints. So I began that, well, let me first just go into, um, really, I'm sort of coming back to my origins as well. I really learned photography through through analog. Um, I was really, really blessed to be at a school that had a lot of funding for the arts. While it wasn't a priority, it was still something we had a, a lot of funding for. So um, we had a full dark room, multiple enlargers, and um, a, a pretty good budget to get chemicals for alternative processes even. So uh, really the first, I'd say, I, I guess I've been 24 now, so I've been shooting for about 10 years, and I, I'd say digital is really something I've only been doing for the last two years. Um, Black Picket Fences was actually the first series I really have done digitally. Um, so a lot of my own knowledge of photography is really rooted in, in analog and different alternative processes, Palladian, um, Collodion, um, cyanotypes, uh, even doing some work with fabrics and, and those different things. So um, I came back to the collodion process through my professor, um, Jay Gold. Um, so Jay is very technically proficient. He, he just knows a lot of a lot of things and he had sort of been reteaching himself the process and then through actually our studio lighting class that he was teaching, we dove into um, collodion and the wet plates. So um, I, I really wanted to sort of figure out a way to reclaim it um, and do it in a way that was fun for me, but also um, I guess paid homage to the process itself and really the history and uh, of collodions and you look at in you look at daguerreotypes and um you look at a lot of the images that are printed on metal and and the quality of them is so much different uh the way that the silvers reflects the skin um and texture it it really is a different sensory experience to to engage with those prints and i wanted something like that for myself um you'll often find that in a lot of those old images they were commissioned by slave masters um, and so I, I became very interested in that 
particular part of the history, um, who had the ability to commission them and what they were commissioned for. And it was through doing a lot of work with my grandfather um, and my mother, trying to locate information about our family down in Mississippi, that I really started to understand the importance of the archive and how many Black families have been stripped of that. Um, and it was something for me um, as simple as phonetics. We had been searching for a few years to try and find any information on a family member. And um, our, our family's last name is Phelps. But, you know, we'd been spelling it the contemporary way of at, uh, P H E L um, P. HS. Mm -hmm. um, but it was phonetically, of course, the way that most things were written was by the sound. So we actually found when we just changed it to F, that's when we started to find information. But it, it took a few years for us to even think about something like that uh, being a barrier for finding out more about who we were. It was just two letters that was really impeding this process. And so uh, we found that out and I found out that we had a lot of family photos that are now owned by a university down in North Carolina um, by a guy who used to take a lot of the photos uh, for just the families in Columbus. And um, it was then that I just became very dedicated to building my own archive and making sure that I was the one who was photographing it. I was photographing my family. I, I didn't want to um, hire someone else to come take images. I wanted to be able to control how these artifacts really were going to be taken and how they were going to be preserved. Um, so that was so important to me, and it was important that I took the time to do that with the people that I find to be, um, I guess, the, the most inspiring, but also the ones that are my legacy. And I think about that often. Um, I'm an only child to a single mom. Um, my grandfather only had one child, which was my, my mother, and then his brother didn't have any children. So I've also felt a huge um, level of responsibility to carry on our family, um, whether it's through me having children or really for me, it's been through photographs, uh, making sure that we have some form of preservation and documentation um, so people know that we exist. Uh, but for me, it was also really, really important to show Black mothers and Black motherhood. Um, I've always had a very interesting relationship with my own mother, uh, and my own mother has had an interesting relationship with her mother. Um, and I recognize a lot of the things that I've had the ability to do and the privilege to do, even think about something like um, a toxic relationship or, you know, toxic forms of communication. I mean, that is a privilege in itself, you know, to actually be able to have the time and the space to think about, oh, how, how am I affected by these things? Um, so I, I really wanted to document them. Um, we, our relationship is, is constantly changing, but the way that I had 
seen um, relationships displayed before, especially with Black mothers in particular. I mean, I hadn't really seen it, in all, in all honesty. Um, and I'm sure that there's stuff out there, but just in, 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 in my life, it, it wasn't really something that I'd seen. And I realized, oh, I have all these pictures of all these other people, but I have no pictures of my mother. I have no pictures of my grandmother. Um, and so that was a chance to reclaim the history and the exclusion that came with Colovian. Um, and I also became very, very interested in what it does to the skin. Um, still to this day, there, there's really been no sort of developments on how black skin and, and, and just darker toned skin is actually shown. Um, I, I had done a few tests with my professor and um, there, there wasn't really, I mean, even he, even he who knows so much, he had really no idea how to account for darker skin. Um, and it was the first time where I was photographed and I saw myself 10 shades darker. Um, I, I had never seen that before. And for me, it was a very um, uncomfortable moment, but I think it was a very important moment uh, because it, also exposed a lot of the inaccuracies of the medium. Um, and I, I've always been very, very interested in the chemistry of it and the science of photography. Um, obviously it was used a lot by scientists and botanists in the, in the original days of photography. Uh, cyanotypes were primarily only used by um, botanists. So I, I became, very interested in that and have always loved working with my hands. Uh, chemistry was the only other subject I ever got a 100% in. So it was something I just genuinely um, enjoyed doing. I, I do come from a family of scientists. So it was also for me a way to sort of pay homage to my grandfather and my uncle um, and their knowledge and the sciences. Um, something I really wanted to pursue, but didn't really feel like um, creatively it satisfied me. So working working in that method has really allowed me to sort of coast between both of those worlds. But in doing so, there becomes an immense amount of responsibility. And I think a desire to just I guess focus a little more on the chemistry. Uh, for me in particular, it's, it's sort of um, a challenge that I want to work with, not just uh, reclaiming it through these images now, but actually spending the time and the years to figure out what the hell this, this, this chemistry can do for, um, for darker tones. So when you look at a lot of the um, collodions, a lot of the black individuals, and, and I'm not even going to say a lot, all of them are misrepresented, you know, all of them are, are not accurate to who you're actually seeing. And I really thought about how that benefited the, um, you know, specifically slave masters at the time. Um, and that representation. Uh, oftentimes, I think that we we forget the value of an image, but at a time where the image was something that was new 
and we're not even talking about photography being included in the conversations of contemporary art mediums, but we're just talking about photography as something that is documenting real time and space. And so for a lot of people, this was fact. The, the skin, the skin um, textures and colors and shades that you're seeing, that was fact. The way that hair was represented was fact. Um, and you'll actually find that when a lot of people get contemporary images done in this this process in the collodion process they don't like it um I, I haven't actually met many people that are a huge fan of it behind beyond just getting a vintage sort of image the way they're actually represented is something that they don't like and this is white and black and so it, it really got me interested in this conversation about how, what, what sort of power do we give to photography as the truth? Um, and, and when do we sort of question uh, really the origins of, of this chemistry? I mean, this is at the same time when eugenics is, is really gaining popularity um, and science is really rooted in proving superiority, pr proving white superiority based on fact and biology. Um, and, and so it really, it brings into an interesting um, question, how much, how much uh, truth and validity and, and power do we give to this chemistry and, and this process that uh, when you really look at it, was curated by particular people, was curated for particular reasons, um, and is often very much spoken in a scientific way that dehumanizes black people entirely and really was the basis for many scientific tests. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's a very loaded history, one that I have been taking my time with. I, I've definitely been taking my time with. Um, so it began with those three images of me and my mother and my grandmother. And I, I really wanted them to experience making an image and, and what that process was like. Uh, beyond just taking a quick picture on the phone, I, I wanted them to also be brought into my process, which was something that I really value. Um, I, I spend all my days and all my time uh, making images. And, you know, I also had a huge question about how many Black artists make work and they're inspired by their family, but their family isn't really involved or, or doesn't really have an awareness of, of what that actually, what they're actually doing. You know, I, I had so friend, so many friends who make work and they're like, I don't, I don't really think my family knows what I'm doing. So, you know, it was a process that takes time um, and I wanted them to be a part of it so they could also understand the act of what was happening. Yeah, um, I, I had a similar experience. Um, I was trying to avoid math and science as an undergrad and then I ended up doing analog photography and I still do it and so all it is is math and science it but, is. Uh, um, I, I really like your um, I believe your approach is very important to uh, this particular project we were talking about um, because you're talking about the archive and narrative um, the narrative of the archive is very important. So that, that talks about the power and the truths, but also I like your recognition of the misrepresentation, um, the acknowledgement of that, uh, the skin tones and uh, the chemistry, the photography as science, the alchemaic side of things um, 
it sort of reminded me of, uh, we, we talked about this in our preliminary interview by Carrie Mae Weems and her project. From here, mm-hmm. I saw what happened and she was dealing with those 1850s daguerreotypes, um, sort of shifting the context and the true meaning behind those images. So that's definitely like a position um, that needs to continue to be considered. So I really like that approach. Yes. I love those prints. Those are gorgeous. <laughs> right. Um, I only got a few more questions for you, Akia. Um, so you um, you just featured me in a uh, Q&A interview on Shades Collective, and you co-founded it with Jennifer Ferretti. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, so can you tell us ab- about Shades Collective, the mission behind it, and maybe some upcoming programming and future collaborations coming up with it? Yes, yes, yes. So um, Shades Collective was, it was actually co-founded with um, Jenny Ferretti and Colette Bizet-Colors. Colette is uh, a photographer as well as the Associate Dean of Design and Media at MICA. Um, But when I met her, she was um, a photographer, well, she was a professor in the photography department, um, one of two um, professors of color that I had during my entire time at MICA. Um, so obviously I gravitated towards her. She was the only, um, not just black female, but just any person of color at all that we had in the department. So. She definitely became a mentor to me very, very quickly, um, and she's she's at a, a different stage. Um, you know, now she's associate dean. It was my senior year when she became the chair of the department. Um, but you know, she's a mother. She is a wife. Um, she's been navigating photography and education and academia much longer than I have. Obviously, Jenny is amazing. Uh, She's a first-generation Latina, and she focuses a lot on that work within library and archives. Um, She is also the digital initiatives librarian at MICA, but she did undergrad as a photographer um, at MICA. So we all had roots in photography, um, and we had all sort of been doing our own things. Um, Jenny... I graduated years before I did, um, but it was an interesting group where we had all been very much rooted in photography. Um, It had been the basis for a lot of the work that we were doing. Um, It's what brought all of us together, but we were also black and brown women at very different stages. Um, I had literally just graduated from undergrad. Jenny had, you know, done her master's and was a librarian and then an art librarian at that which is is always an interesting intersection um and, and she does a lot of really great work with getting people to understand the value especially photographers like how research is is actually very critical and can really help inform a lot of the ways that you move so when we founded shades it actually came out of us having um, a panel at SPE, which is the Society for Photographic Education. And it was in Cincinnati, or was it Cleveland? No, it was Cleveland. We um, were giving a talk on the American dream um, and navigating as people of color in academia. 
So all of us were very much rooted in photography and, and, and had an understanding of the contemporary photographic landscape, but a lot of our work was also in tandem with academia. So we, we really became interested in trying to figure out a way to further the conversations that we started at SPE. Um, and we had also had that panel with El Perez, who um, is an amazing photographer who also came out of Micah Photo. So we all sort of found ourselves um, really navigating both contemporary photography and academia and had been very aware of the ways that it had just created a lot of, of different challenges, um, not just for making work, but for getting engagement on work, for, for really having any sort of movement um, for our own individual goals. Um, so we became really interested in centering conversations around the experience of people of color who are in the arts and humanities and academia. I think that there's a lot of conversations that are happening specifically about the experience of people of color, but I don't think enough are happening about the experiences of being a person of color, specifically in academia and the arts and the intersection of that. And we became just very frustrated by a lot of the things that we were experiencing. Um, things I was ranting to Colette about, you know, um, she'd been experiencing for years and years. And, and um, so we sort of came together and, and um, now Jenny and I are doing it still. Um, Colette is still a dear mentor to me. Um, <clears throat> but we really took it. I'll be honest, we, we really didn't know what we wanted to do when we started Shades. Um, the, the series, Taking Our Seat, is a series that we started, uh, which we interviewed, interviewed you for, uh, where we really just give a spotlight um, and a platform to um, ask people questions about their practice. Um, I, I really love to talk. I love to talk about my work. All of us really like to talk. We could talk for hours and so you know, also a lot of this is happening and existing in Baltimore, which is very small. The arts community is very small. You will often find that the same artists are being shown, the same artists are being talked about. There's really only one arts publication. And if you're not featured in it, it's, it's sort of like, there, there's really not many conversations about your work. And so for me, it really became a thing where I came up with the idea of the series to give a space to people that maybe weren't even interested in commercial photography um, or commercial art making, weren't really interested in um, curating a presence on social media. Um, and, you know, there's so many amazing, amazing artists who aren't interested in engaging and, and a lot of the ways that quite honestly, you sort of have to engage in to, to be recognized or to have eyes on your work and so we made the space to focus specifically on the areas that we felt were lacking and those were the areas that we were consumed by every day which was academia and libraries and, and archives um, for Jenny especially uh, what does it look like for, for her or to be a radical librarian what does that even mean and how does that intersect with art um, how does that intersect with art making? How does research 
collide with, um, uh, you know, having a fine art practice. So we, we were all consumed in that in our own respective paths. So we sort of came together and taking our, our seat is something I've really enjoyed doing. Um, it's sort of my, my little baby where um, I ask questions of, of artists and um, it's also a really great space for me to be engaging with other people that are and, and you'll find often dealing with the same things. I mean, I, I know that you must have, you know, have to deal with a certain amount just also as an educator. And, you know, I, I taught as a nonprofit arts teacher throughout the city and it was one of the most exhausting, exhausting, exhausting hours of, of many of the jobs that I've done. It's one that I, I value greatly but I also really wanted to have a space to talk about those frustrations, um, especially with navigating these communities. There's so much labor that happens by people of color in these institutions. And I think that that's also something that we really wanted to focus on uh, when we conceived of shades. Um, and, and for me, seeing firsthand um, Colette, who is a mother of, of three, three beautiful girls and is a wife and is an educator and is also a photographer, but also curates so many different things on campus that, that really give visibility to people that didn't have visibility. And also at the same time is really the mother for so many kids on campus who really have no other black professors. They have no other black faculty. They have no one else who understands what they're going through. Um, and for me also to, to be one of the people um, receiving that care, but also to realize the huge amount of impact and the work that it required of her that was unseen, that was unpaid, that was often unacknowledged. I think that there's, there's, there's got to be more spaces that really focus on the ways that institutions are failing the people of color that they have that really unfairly end up being advocates for everyone. So, so we've been, we've been uh, really figuring that out and, and what we want that to look like. Uh, we have launched our new series, um, Sustaining Ourselves, which is our programming series. We had originally hoped for it to be in person, but obviously we have had to adapt with the pandemic and such, but we really wanted to curate a space where um, it sort of functions as a Skillshare, but we really wanted it to be a central place where people of color, and, and we use the term by POC, um, Black and Indigenous people of color, are providing skills for people of color. Um, and, and really looking at a lot of the ways that not having access to certain things has really kept um, people of color in a, a particular lane. So we look for um, by POC who are within real estate, who are um, first in accounting, business. And a lot of this became important because I graduated. Um, I immediately was working as a, a federal contractor, so I was still independent. So suddenly I had to um, figure out a lot of these things that also these schools did not teach, um, you know. So 
I very quickly had to figure out the logistics and the reality of being a full-time practicing artist. Um, this is also at the time where I was gaining um, a lot more visibility and awards and a lot more opportunities and shows. And, and suddenly I had to figure out like, okay, how, how do I take care of my taxes? How do I account for these things? What does this mean? What does copyright mean and why is it important? Why is a contract important and why do you actually need to understand what goes into the contract so you can protect yourself? What are the laws around licensing for images and who uses them and who has the right to reproduce them? How do I go about getting a gallery? How do I go about getting representation? Do I want representation? What, what's the benefit of representation? I, I suddenly had to figure out all these things and I graduated and realized, oh, right, uh, they didn't actually prepare us for any of the real world practicalities of sustaining and supporting yourself as an artist. So the series is really curated around that in particular and doing so by employing all by POC instructors and just people who are already doing it, but we really think it's important that people who look like us are the ones who are telling us how they do it, as opposed to, um, con you know, just consistently supporting a lot of white-run institutions and white consultants that don't often consider the barriers that we still have to deal with on the other side. Of, of those skills so yeah it, it's been it's been very fun uh we're going to be sort of taking a pause um after our august programming i really need a break um jenny <laughs> jenny focuses a lot on the events and the programming and curating it but aside from that um i manage the website entirely and, and design newsletters, um, doing the interviews, all of it is really something I do um, out of love, but I, I am finding that I need a break. So we're going to be taking a break and sort of reevaluating what we want it to function as um, and really what, what's, what we're trying to continue with, especially with a lot of the larger societal shifts that have happened recently. <laughs> Yeah, that I mean, uh, everything you just said um, ties in together nicely, and um, I hope that I can work with you all in Shades Collective um, in the future, collaborate on something or support in some type of way um, as you all move forward, as we both move forward. But um, you mentioned earlier um, archives and academia um, and trying to navigate those spaces. Um, I get, and you mentioned research and arts practice too, and how important that is. Um, and I just can't reiterate that enough um, because I'll borrow some words from my mom. It's like, when you, when you engage with that, that research and you look at it for yourself, it's kind of, and you're in that academic setting, which I think a lot of times is, oh, take what I say. Mm -hmm. And then you carry on to the next thing where it's like, no, I'm engaged with this myself. You can't just bring anything to me and have me accept it. Right. <laughs> so I think that's an, an important uh, position. So um, best wishes with everything that's going on with Shades Collective. And please let me know if I can help in any way. Thank you. The, the next, I, this is my last question for you. Um, as, as we navigate through this pandemic, 
and how everything is shifting now, as you just mentioned, what's next for you? Oh, the question. <laughs> um, what is next for me? Um, I'm, I'm actually having a really great time not knowing. Um, for the first time in a really long time, I do not care to know, and I do not to um, try and figure it out. Um, I, I think it's a it's a very interesting time because I feel like it, it's a it's an awakening for a lot of people. Um, but for me, this time has been, I, I guess, the culmination of a lot of exhaustion that I don't think people see when they see uh, a lot of the things that you know people have going on. So for me, this is a time where I'm actually taking a step back from my practice. Um, my residencies that I had um, coming up at Mass MoCA and Museum of Contemporary Art Tucson, those are going to be pushed back until next year. I have decided not to continue on with one of my fellowships and I have just taken a lot of off in my plate in terms of uh, work I was doing for clients. I have turned down a lot of shows, a lot of lectures and talks and honestly I'm giving myself the space to take a break and figure out um, how, how I want to move. Um, I, I think the last two years have been a very interesting time in particular. Um, I, I've really sort of, I, I, I dove into the life of a full-time practicing artist much quicker than I anticipated. Um, it was pretty much immediately after I graduated and I, I'll be honest in saying I'm not sure if it's something I want. Um, I, I, I don't, I've been very fortunate to be able to support myself during this time without having to sell work. But, you know, uh, even showing in galleries, I'm not interested in the audiences coming through to those ga uh, galleries. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more particular about who I work with and really feeling like they support my mission in their actions before even having any sort of connection to me. I am a lot more interested in taking a step back and figuring out what made um, photography something that I enjoyed. Um, I, I think it's been really great having all these opportunities and I've, I've been doing so much, but I also, I'm very aware and I don't think a lot of people who don't have the opportunity to do it see the art making is 10% of it you know I've, I've had to be my own PR person my own accountant my own tax person my own um, assistant I've had to be writing grants and applications and editing them and consulting and doing um, you know checking out frames and printing and I, there's so many other aspects to my practice that don't even have anything to do with the work. So I'm, I'm actually very excited right now to stick, take a step back from all that and figure out how, how to sustain all of that without having to have representation, without having to show my work, without having to share on social media and really maintain a presence on there, which I, I just, I've never felt comfortable with. It doesn't sit well with me. Um, it, 
doesn't really contribute to me mentally in a productive way. So I'm actually in a space of reworking a lot of those things. Um, and with a lot of, I won't say distrust, but definitely with a, a, a new level of holding people accountable, even when it means giving up opportunities um, and, and really staying true to that. So we will see, we'll see. Well, I applaud that position. And I think uh, taking the time to do that for yourself and, and having an honor understanding for why you're doing it is, is going to pay dividends down the road. Um, so best wishes in that. Um, and, and thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. And again, you've re-energized me. <laughs> um, just hearing you speak and uh, the ways you're choosing to move forward uh, is encouraging to me. Um, and, and I hope we can continue to work together in the future. Yes, definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Absolutely. That was my interview with Akia Brion Brown. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. To find out more about the Center for Photographers of Color, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Photogs of Color. Again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.